This morning we continue our series, uh, The Evil of Easter Overcome. If you have your Bibles, we're going to ask you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 27, and we'll read the last few verses of Matthew 27. And I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand out of respect for God and his word for these last few verses. Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. Here we find the words, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Let us pray as we enter this time of looking at God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds now. We thank you for the worship through song as the gospel was proclaimed there. And now, Lord, as we seek to proclaim it through the preaching of the word, we ask that you would take a, an unworthy vessel and use it for your glory, that your people and those who are listening who may not yet be your people may be called to you, may be given life through the Son, that they might find him and that they might find a relationship with him. May your spirit uh, work powerfully through the airwaves, Lord, to minister, to bring comfort and encouragement and transformation to the lives of all those who are here, not just today, but in all the days of the future when this message is replayed. God, work powerfully in each one of those instances, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you for at home for standing. You may be seated uh, on your couch if that's where you are. just want to start off and ask if you remember the story about a man named Job. Uh, Job was a Jeff Bezos wealthy kind of guy. Uh, but he was a little bit different in that he faithfully followed God and stayed away from all forms of evil. He, he did his best to be obedient to God with every aspect of his life. And you probably remember his story a little bit in the sense of uh, not only was he wealthy, but not, not so much that, but what happened to that wealth and the rest of his life. Due to reasons unknown to him and to others around him who were his friends, uh, he suffered great loss. He lost all of his children in a tragic accident. His wealth uh, came to nothing in a short amount of time. Uh, and then on top of that, to make matters worse, just a period short, shortly after that, he lost his personal health. And you can imagine being in such a, a dire situation uh, and understand why he had deep emotional and theological questions for God about his circumstances. And God, knowing very well the struggles that was going on in Job's life, decided to grant Job an audience with himself. And it was in that conversation that Job uttered something that has a timeless quality to it. In Job chapter 42, verse 2, we find Job saying this about God. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That sentiment, that statement that Job uttered so many years ago has echoed through the halls of time. Isaiah, the prophet, would say something very similar during his time 
on planet Earth when he would write these words. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? The Old Testament scholar John uh, N. Oswalt, uh, in reflecting on this text, makes this comment as he talks about it in its context. He writes, Here is the final issue of biblical faith. If there is one almighty creator of the universe who is intimately and purposely involved with his creation, then there is no power on earth, least of all human pride, which can successfully rise up against him. There is no middle way. There is no limited or developing deity. This is the Holy One. Either we accept Isaiah's vision of God and we seek to live in glad obedience or we are obligated to say that Isaiah was mistaken and to admit that there is no right way of living. This ancient truth that was spoken by Job and echoed by Isaiah uh, is confirmed by the historical events that happened days after Jesus' death by Roman crucifixion just outside the city of Jerusalem. I want to rehearse those events for you that led up to Jesus' murder and then afterwards look at those events because there are some things that we can learn. So the question we might ask ourselves is, what brought us to this gruesome execution of Jesus? In light of our sermon series, I would like to offer a different perspective on the events that led up to Jesus's life. I would like to look at them from the angle of one who would have been in the opposition. And the way that I would like to do that is by, if I could borrow your imaginations for a moment, I would do an interview with someone from the first century who had been an eyewitness who held that view so that they could share that with you. And it would probably look something like this. Thank you for joining us for this special report. We have a special guest today, Miriam. We have changed her name for her protection. Miriam, we appreciate you being with us today. Would you mind sharing a little bit about the life of Jesus with us? Tell me a little bit about him for what you remember. From what I remember, he was a young rabbi from the northern area of Galilee. They say that he was raised in a poor town called Nazareth, and his father was Joseph, I believe, and he was a carpenter. He, from what I heard, I think he was born under very questionable circumstances. I think what stands out in my mind is that he was making great claims about himself. It was so hard to believe what he was saying that most people believed that he was a false prophet. Miriam, so tell me a little bit about why your leaders were opposed to him. Where do I start? Well, truthfully, the things that he was saying, no man should claim about himself. He called God his father. He was claiming to be equal with God. He even said he could forgive people's sins. Really? Only God can forgive sins. On top of that, he wouldn't keep the Sabbath. He wouldn't obey the traditions. 
He wasn't even taught by a notable rabbi. On top of that, he was hanging out all the time with the wrong kinds of people like tax collectors and prostitutes. Mary, would you mind telling me about some of the things that Jesus did? That's the thing. Even though he was saying things that were just hard to believe, he did a lot of miraculous things. He healed all kinds of diseases and ailments. He cast out evil spirits out of people. He even fed thousands of people in two different occasions. The thing is that everybody has been asking, where is this power coming from? Mm -hmm. Some people think it's actually God himself, and then other leaders are not even sure. But then we have others that say that they think the power comes from dark sources. He also does incredible teaching. I mean, he just draws a crowd when he's sharing, you know, the different teachings that he has to share with people. And I think that the biggest problem that the leaders are worried about is that his popularity just keeps growing and growing. Mary, can you tell me about what led to his crucifixion? Well, he eventually ended up coming to Jerusalem, but things didn't go very well. He ended up going into the temple, turning over the coin tables. He insulted the leaders at different points. Um, and even when the leaders would like question Jesus and have debates, he always ended up embarrassing them. So, so I think it got to the point that the leaders just had enough of him. So they just went to the Roman government and they all go breathe to have him executed on the preparation day. Well, thank you for sharing with us, Miriam. Uh, it's good to get a firsthand report about the life and ministry of Jesus. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us. In the Good Friday, Pastor, uh, Pastor Mike shared with us, we were left with the sense that evil had indeed had the last word. The religious leadership and the governmental authorities seemed to get away with murder, literally. However, like we mentioned previously, the plans of God cannot be thwarted. So I want to take a moment to look in detail of how God and indeed overcame evil and overcomes evil. I'm going to show this to you by pairing up some coupling of events. What we're going to see is man's action followed by God's action. And then another set of that same thing, man's action followed by God's action. And here's my first point. The first way God has overcome evil is by raising the Messiah, Jesus, from the dead. In the last verses that we read of Matthew chapter 27, we read about, we, we read about how humans who, uh, who were spiritually blind used their power and their influence to try to keep Jesus in the tomb. Now, the reason why they were trying to do that or they were spiritually blind is because they had chosen to travel down the path of unbelief. Now, you sitting there, if you're a believer, you're probably wondering in your mind, why would anyone choose a path of unbelief? Well, from the Gospels, we probably can pull a few evidences that hint at that. It was perhaps because of their pride, perhaps because of their envy of Jesus's ministry, and most likely because they desired to continue to protect the way of life that they knew and were accustomed to. See, Jesus's death signified, at least for them and for others who would listen to them, that his claims to be the Son of God and the Messiah 
were false. As long as Jesus remained in the tomb, it proved that their decision about him was right. He was just another imposter. And this is what they did. Let me read the text to you again. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. We see that some of the leading priests and members of the Pharisee party who normally would not have probably gotten along or even viewed things the same way or even agreed to work together, find themselves in light of Jesus working together here to request that they seal up and place a guard at the tomb of Jesus. The religious leaders want the body of Jesus to remain in the tomb. Uh, if his body went missing, their, their fear is that People who are part of the population might believe that he was raised from the dead because they recalled that he had predicted that before he died. Now, we know from the text they didn't actually believe that there, a real resurrection was possible, at least not before the general resurrection, at least on the Pharisees who held that view. Uh, and for that, for that matter, neither did his disciples. They, they, they had no idea. They were, they were in hiding. But what the Pharisees and the religious leaders, uh, the chief priests did believe was that perhaps uh, Jesus' disciples, who we know were terrified, uh, battling deep grief, some like probably Peter, dealing with a deep sense of guilt for betraying Jesus and running out on him in his greatest hour of need, that somehow these disciples who were emotionally distraught would muster up the courage to attempt to make a trip to the tomb to remove his body so that they could spread fake news, go around lying and say that he had been raised when in fact they knew that his body was still lifeless. But that brings me to some of the implications. See, what's true is that what spiritually blinded hearts did in the first century, spiritually blinded hearts still do in the 21st century. They try to keep Jesus in the tomb. Today, that's not done literally, but figuratively. It's done through the writing of books, articles, blogs, comments on different websites, websites that are set up for this, making of videos on, on YouTube. And just, these are just some of the ways that people try to keep Jesus in the tomb. And you might ask, what, what would it profit a person by Jesus' remaining, life, remaining lifeless in the tomb? Well, perhaps from a modern perspective, we might view it this way. If Jesus is still in the tomb and his body is still lifeless and he is, he's dead, then Christianity becomes a fairy tale. And all the standards of morality that Christians hold to have no bearing on anyone's life. You get to decide what is right for you. And if there is a God, it's not the one that the Christians have been proclaiming. And since that's the case, there might be more than one way to God. It also means you don't have to worry about the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's not going to show up and he's not going to hold you accountable for the life you live. And for a matter of fact, if you really think about it, there might not be a God at all. 
from an ancient Jewish perspective, which the Apostle Paul gives us on these events, who still held to faith in the God of Israel, he paints a much bleaker picture. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He went on a few verses later to say, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, what Paul is saying, if Jesus still lies lifeless in a tomb and his body is still dead, then preaching is pointless. Christianity is false. Placing your faith in Jesus is worthless. And everyone who has died is right now in hell. But thankfully, thankfully, the count of Jesus did not end on Friday. The intermission of Saturday was over. Sunday had arrived, and we find good news. Let's see what happened in the text, picking up in Matthew chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, seek the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. In the text we see that a heavenly messenger proclaims it. The women... By looking in the tomb, they witness it. And later, by Jesus' own appearance, his bodily presence confirms it. The truth that the tomb was empty and God had raised Jesus from the dead. And what we celebrate this resurrection day, the fact that Jesus lives. Now, what I love about this text is what the women do when they actually run into Jesus. They do what every person should do, every human being should do. They get it right here. Their, their response to Jesus is one of falling down before him and worshiping him. And Jesus does what is right in response that's only right for God to do. He receives their worship. Well, what does the empty tomb imply for us? It implies, first of all, that the Sanhedrin's decision to execute Jesus because they thought his claims were false, they were wrong. Jesus is just what he claimed to be, God's son and God's Messiah. The God of Israel exists. Morality matters. Our faith is not in vain. Resurrection is real. We actually have hope beyond the grave. There's only one way to this God, and it is through Jesus Christ. Our sins really are forgiven, and he is going to return one day and hold all men living and dead to account as he calls every man out of the grave. And lastly, that Jesus truly is worthy 
of worship. In an article I read earlier this week on Preaching Today by the editor Matt Woolley, he quoted Leslie Newbegin, the great missionary scholar, who said this, Resurrection is no longer a mere doctrine. It has a living face and a name. Jesus is, is himself the presence of the life, which is God's gift beyond death. To be bound to Jesus by faith is to share already now the life which is beyond death. That brings me to the second way God overcomes evil. Not only does God overcome evil by raising the Messiah from the dead, he overcomes evil by spreading the true message about Christ, by spreading the true message about Christ. Now, you would think that after such an otherworldly encounter with the heavenly being and then hearing the report about the empty tomb, that there would be a change of heart, at least on the part of the guards. However, in the text, we find something different going on. Uh, something else that we might not expect. Return with me to the text. We pick up at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Instead of changing their view about Jesus in light of the evidence that they had received, the religious leaders, aided by the guards, uh, planned a cover-up operation. They ended up doing the very thing that they assumed that the disciples would try to do, which was deceive people about the truth. And the story that they had told was that the, the guards would fall asleep. And the question ought to be for us is, if you were sleeping, how did you know it was the disciples? That, among many other things, would cause us problems with their story. But Matthew said, despite all of the issues with the story that they made up, and when he wrote some 30 to 40 years later, they were still telling this lie. As a matter of fact, when Justin Martyr, who wrote about 100 years later, uh, wrote, he said the same lie was being perpetuated during his day. And this is what Justin Martyr wrote uh, in his dialogue with Trifo. He said this, And though all the men of your nation knew the incidents in the life of Jonah, and though Christ said among you that he would give the sign of Jonah, exhorting you to repent of your wicked deeds, at least offer after he rose again from the dead, and to mourn before God as the Ninevite, in order that your nation and city might not be taken and destroyed as they have been destroyed, yet you not only have not repented after you learned that he rose from the dead, but as, as I said before, you have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim a godless and lawless heresy has sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver, whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb, where he was laid when, when he was unfastened from the cross and now deceived men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. See, humans who are spiritually blind will inevitably seek to spread a false message about the truth about Jesus. And this is evil. Why is it evil? It is evil because it keeps people away from the truth and ultimately away from God's salvation that he offers. And sadly, the same thing still happens today. People who have spiritually blinded hearts are out sharing false messages about Jesus. And what they don't know is that when they do this, although they're probably thinking they're just doing the world a service, 
They have partnered up without their knowledge with sinister spiritual forces who also have the exact same agenda. Hear the words of Paul to the Corinthian church. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. <clears throat> Not only are there people who want to tell lies about Jesus, but there are spiritual forces who also want to accomplish that same purpose. And when people do that, they partner up, sometimes unknowingly, to be a part and uh, on the team of those sinister spiritual forces. And in light of what the Bible tells us, we realize how harmful lies about Jesus are for humanity because they have eternal ramifications. Paul, in writing to the Thessalonian church, reminded the believers in his second letter in the first chapter that when anyone does not have faith in Jesus Christ, God's appointed and anointed Messiah, then they are separated from God forever. And when does forever end? Thankfully, God has done something to overcome this evil as well, spiritual and human. God instead sends out messengers, his messengers, to speak the truth about Jesus. We see this in the text. Let's return into that well-known passage at the end of Matthew's gospel, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing me in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, one of the realities is, is that as we proclaim this message, as this message about Jesus spreads throughout the world, God works through this message to save people from their sins and the consequences of their sins, which is to face the wrath of God. And it is that reason why Paul said in the book of Romans, he said this very famous thing, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We know this to be historically true because we see it in the Thessalonians' lives when Paul wrote this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he calls you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only do we have to look to the past, but we can look right now to the present. You are a living example of the fact that what God has done through the proclaimed message about Jesus still has the power to change lives. You're the living epistles that testify that God's good news about Jesus can change a person's life. But you know what I found fascinating in all of this as we continue to read the biblical text? That after the arrival of the Holy Spirit, when he empowered those fearful disciples to become fearless dispensers of truth, and they went back right there in Jerusalem where Jesus had been crucified and proclaimed this message about Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and without fear to the very people who had been part of uh, this sinister plot to have him uh, executed. 
There was a result uh, in the display of God's kindness to this very group of people. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Notice what the text ends with, And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. God in his great mercy through the power of the gospel took those who had been part of the plot to execute Jesus and when the gospel was preached to them, saved many of them and changed them so that their hearts were now for God and not against him. See, in this we see that God over overcomes evil human intentions and evil spiritual powers intentions when the truth about Jesus is proclaimed. Let me close with this story. Perhaps you remember the well-known life testimony of the author, Lee Strobel. He was an award-winning legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, and at that point in his life, he was an atheist. After his wife became a Christian, he wanted to find out and really see if there was something to this Christianity or had his wife been duped into some form of a, of a cult. One, one article said this, with, with the training of a newspaper legal affairs reporter, Lee Strobel spent two years investigating the claim that we often say as Christian, God loves you. He, he wanted to know if that claim was true, but for him, it all boiled down to one question. It all hinged upon this one question. Did Jesus or did he not really return and rise from the dead? Whatever the answer to that question was would have an uh, impact on his life and should have an impact on every human's life. Well, after pursuing that question, it led him to scholars, uh, both believers and non-believers. And after two years of investigation, after two years of research, after two years of conversations with those who were scholars in their, in their field, he found the answer to the question, did Jesus rise again? He is now a, a Christian pastor and author. So we know what answer he found. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. His life, along with the lives of many of you, testify the fact that God still saves because Jesus lives. Now today, on this day, when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, I encourage you to do what the women did when they encountered Jesus. Do what the disciples did on that mountain when they encountered Jesus. They worshiped him. Remember what Jesus said about himself in Revelations? He is the one who died and now is alive forevermore. He is the living one, the ruler of God's creation. He is the lamb of God. And I encourage you today, on this day when we celebrate the one who has overcome death, who has overcome all spiritual forces, and who now sits on the right hand of God, ready to return one day, worship him. He is worthy of your worship. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth about Jesus. I thank you that you have broken through space and time and that you have made uh, life and immortality to come to light through Jesus Christ, your son. Thank you for this awesome gift of giving your son, which is a tangible expression of your awesome, so much great love for us. We thank you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. And Lord Jesus, we exalt you. We know that it was not easy to live down here among sinners and to never sin once. Not in thought, not in deed, not in word, not in action. You remained unstained, though you were filled, or were filled with an encounter by people who were filled with sin. And then you willingly laid down your life in obedience to the Father 
so that the plan of God might play out and our salvation might be secured, that we might be purchased from among men to be as Paul wrote the first few fruits. We thank you today because without you, we would have no hope. We give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor. It is in your name we pray. Amen.